0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. I'm Claire Jeffrey, the editor-in-chief of Mother Jones. It is now my great pleasure to introduce Frank Farr, who I've known a little bit for a very long time. He's now a staff writer at The Atlantic, and the author of The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future. Previously, he was the editor-in-chief of The New Republic, and a staff writer at Slate, and a staff writer at New York Magazine, and the author of two other really great books that I highly recommend. One is on globalization and soccer, and the other is on big tech, essentially. Um, Frank's new book is a really gripping account of the first two years of the Biden administration, the successes, the failures, the dilemmas, the policy disputes, um, and it is... Uh, I highly recommend it. It's 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 a weird thing to like take the first two years and sort of stop to write, and then like kind of another year transpires, Yeah. but at the same time, I think it really gives readers a good sense of where we are now, and the man, and his aides, and the, some of the things we're up against. So thank you, Frank, for joining us tonight. Oh,
1: thank you for doing this.
0: I couldn't be happier. Um, I think... I experience a much milder form of something that I'm betting you get it a lot, which is anytime I go to a social engagement of any kind, people surround me and ask me if I think Joe Biden's too old Yep. and why nobody is yep. challenging him.
1: Yeah, dispose of it at the outset. Um,
0: and, and what I say um, is something along the lines of, like, surprisingly, he's delivered more on more fronts, and in a more progressive direction than I think anyone could have imagined. Did you, do you share that assessment, but also, yep. what was what surprised you the most about Joe Biden's first yep. two years?
1: So, I mean, you, you said at the outset that it's an interesting thing to take a look back after two years, and so when I, my publisher came to me with the idea for this book, and she said, I want you to write about the first hundred days of this presidency. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that or not. And I could see the appeal. I could see that writing about the pandemic, writing about all these people rushing to these institutions of government that had been destroyed by Donald Trump was an interesting story that I could get behind. But Joe Biden was a character who held so little appeal to me. Um, And... There were a couple of reasons. The first is that as a Washington political reporter, I had interacted with him enough over the course of my career to know that the stories went on forever. The first time I talked to him, I was 24 years old, and I got him on the phone, and it was like five minutes in. It was like, oh, my God, he's never (laughs) going (laughs) to (laughs) leave. And it's like the same stories he's been telling since then. Um, I, I keep getting older, older. the stories just get keeping, keep getting moldy, moldier. Um, so I admit that there was maybe some element of class to that as well, and I think when we talk about Joe Biden and his place in the Democratic Party, class is, is definitely part of it, that he's somebody who self-consciously comes from Scranton, connects with blue-collar America in a very almost cartoonish sort of way. And then he aged into a democratic party where the elite were all these Ivy league meritocrats who were like Barack Obama. They were people who who were, who were sophisticated who went to fancy law schools. And when they heard Joe Biden speak in the way that he speaks, they couldn't connect with it either. And they would roll their eyes at him. And one of the interesting things about Joe Biden is that he knows you're rolling your eyes at him when he does it. And it just makes him double down. (laughs) Um, And so, I didn't really want to write about you. The thing that surprised me about Joe Biden was Joe Biden in the end that I thought that there was, um, and that's the title of my book, the politician that the politician as an archetype is someone who has this artificiality and who people don't really trust because we think they say one thing in public and another thing in private. One of the first jokes that I learned to tell as a kid was about, um, a guy walking into a used brain store, and the punchline was that the po- the politician's brain was so expensive because it was hardly ever used. <laughs> and um, what I came to appreciate over the course of reporting this book and seeing Joe Biden up front was that there are virtues to politics and to the professional politician. That all of these qualities that I suspected the the flattery, the the nose counting, the horse trading, the the deep desire to make a deal actually ended up being his strengths. And I agree. I mean, I think I was surprised um, by how much progressive, how many progressive things he was able to get done. I wasn't surprised by the agenda. And part of the reason I was able to get access to them in the way that I did was that I read the policy proposals during the campaign and I saw that they were incredibly ambitious, especially about remaking the role of state and the market. Um, and so I wrote about them in a way that took them seriously, but I'm surprised that he was able, with this one vote margin in the Senate, to get as much as he was able to get.
0: Can you talk a little bit or maybe hit some highlights of the things that he's been able to do, the leveraging the power of the state? Because I think that that, and we'll come back to the second part, is sort of lost on people. Yes. Um, in part because... A lot of the things are yet to actually manifest themselves in people's real lives. But
1: But I think the way that I think about it is that um, after Ronald Reagan, the economics of the Democratic Party went in one direction, which paid a lot of deference to the Reagan legacy. So both Obama and Clinton embraced an economics that tried to maintain a light maintain government having a light footprint in the economy. They were basically indifferent to the problem of monopoly. They were very lukewarm, if not hostile, to unions. And what Biden has done through this constellation of bills and they kind of add up to more than the sum of their parts. And
0: they all have terrible names.
1: They have terrible names. Like the Inflation Reduction Act does nothing to reduce inflation, really, and is a climate bill. (laughs) It should be the Emissions Reduction Act. Um, uh, You have the CHIPS bill, which makes all these investments, not just in the manufacture of semiconductors, but also in hard science and in research. You have the, um, have the, the infrastructure bill, Um, And what they do in aggregate is pour all this money into the economy in order to stimulate things to achieve progressive ends. And the primary progressive end being reducing carbon emissions. But also there is this goal that you can redirect the trajectory of the American corporation so that the American corporation becomes a better American citizen, really. And that relates to how they treat workers. And it relates to how they think about their role in the communities in which they inhabit. And so the Obama- Clinton direction pushed push towards globalization, And this is a form of deglobalization that's happening. And, and so the reindustrialization of vast parts of America is happening in order to prioritize production of things that happens in the United States and it has to happen in his view in lockstep with unionization and really he's um, he's a nostalgist at heart and that's why he tells all of these stories that for somebody who has suffered so much in his past he's constantly yearning for a return to the past and in his mind DuPont circa 1955 is this peak for America which also happens to be the way that a lot of Democrats think about, like a lot of the more progressive Democrats think about America, that there was this golden age that existed after the New Deal, after World War II, where we had much less inequality, where workers had much more leverage over American life. And that's what he hopes to return to.
0: Did it surprise you when he went to a picket line? I mean, Uh, even after writing this book, like that...
1: No, it didn't. It really didn't, because in his heart of hearts that's how he wants to be perceived. It's really important to him that he be perceived in that sort of way because if he um I think he views being pro union as equivalent to being a good guy and he desperately wants to be perceived as a good guy. But it's really interesting um one thing I didn't include in the book that I wish I had more space to include was his best friend is his old chief of staff who's actually an engineer at DuPont named Ted Kaufman. And he was his chief of staff. He fell in love with Joe Biden and became his chief of staff and worked with him for about 25 years. And they would ride together every day from Wilmington um, first in a car because he made Biden made a promise to Bo and Hunter that he would always be in touch. And so in the seventies and eighties, there were no small cell phones. So they had this cell phone that took up the entirety of their trunk so that <laughs> they would always be in touch and they would have these long conversations. And then, When Joe Biden was elected vice president, um, he got Ted Kaufman appointed to his Senate seat. Um, And Ted Kaufman arrived in 2008 in the Senate, and he saw what was happening in the financial crisis, and it really pissed him off in a deep, visceral way. Now, Joe Biden had been the senator from MBNA; he'd worked, he'd done the bidding of the financial services industry for most of his career, and so Kaufman. Just to back
0: up, uh, because I'm I'm not sure that people know how how much Delaware is invested in, in big banks and kind of yeah. somewhat shady uh, financial transactions.
1: Yeah, no, Delaware is the home to the American shell company. Yeah. And so if you want to anonymously move money through the American financial system, you go through Wilmington. And, um, and Biden was a part of sanctioning the rise of that system. And so Ted Kaufman, his best friend, was telling him how much finance sucked. Apologies to anybody in finance. Um, and then Bo Biden, actually, with Kamala Harris, was really upset with the deal that the Obama administration had cut with the banks over the housing crisis. And so, Bo Biden also kind of turned against finance. And so, the people, two people closest to Joe Biden, um, were just talking his ear off about the problem with the big banks. And it played this role in transforming him, and especially. After Bo died, I think there was part of him that took that more seriously. And when you staff an administration, Elizabeth Warren has this line that personnel is policy. And Ted Kaufman was in charge of staffing the transition, staffing the administration, picking the people who would pick the administration. And there was this joke that if you had an internship at Goldman Sachs in the 1980s, You weren't going to be able to get a job in the biden administration and that was one of the things that surprised me at the outset the most which was how many people from elizabeth warren's world had these jobs of enormous power in the administration so you you look at something like the war on big tech that's happening right now or the all the stuff that's happening it's because she insisted on installing lena khan who is a 30 year old law professor in this job as the head of the Federal Trade Commission. Really significant uh, appointment that's gonna have maybe as big a consequence as anything else the Biden administration does on economics. And it happens through these kind of arcane ways that government works.
0: And does the staffing from the onset help explain in part why people further to his left, whether it's Bernie or Elizabeth or, you know, anybody else kind of backed off and started working with him? Or was it mostly just sheer horror at Trump and what he had done and a united front?
1: The relationship with Bernie Sanders, I think is really interesting because Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden were rivals in, for the nomination in 2020. And they would show up at state fairs together and they would they would speak after one another. And Bernie Sanders would listen to the way that Joe Biden talked about non-college voters, which for him is the great litmus test for how you think about American life because they're this neglected group. And so he would see that Biden had this sympathy for them and that he he would talk about them explicitly in his stump speeches. And so he made this calculation that he could have a symbiotic relationship with Joe Biden, which is, this is the way... This is the way that politics works. You have a movement guy and you have a politician, and the politician is a bit of a weather vane. And the movement person says, okay, I think that this weather vane could be moved, could be pointed in the direction that I desire. And so Sanders made this calculation that he could work with Joe Biden. I think he's been maybe disappointed in the end that Biden didn't do anything, wasn't able to expand. The social safety net in any sort of meaningful way, which is what he thought that there was this great opportunity to do. And Joe Biden, for what it was worth, thought there was this great opportunity to do it. But alas, Joe Manchin.
0: Yeah. I mean, Joe Manchin really hovers over your book and yeah. the Biden administration as a sort of peculiar wraith. Um, if you had to boil down the sort of trajectory of their personal relationship over the past two years and maybe before, like mm-hmm. it, it you know, I it, it was remarkable. As many articles that I had read about people going to Joe Biden's, I mean, to a, Joe Manchin's houseboat, I was really <laughs> struck anew how much is done on that, how much business is done on that houseboat. Not Biden per se, but how how yeah. did those two kind of orbit each other?
1: Yeah. Um, so Joe Manchin is a very confusing person because he says a lot of things a lot of the time and the audience, uh, changes what he's actually saying. So if he's talking to business people in Palm beach, or if he's writing an op-ed in the wall street journal, he'll wring his hands about how the Biden agenda is going to result in massive amounts of inflation And if he's talking to Joe Biden in private, he's going to say to him, I'm here with you. Let's get this deal done. Um, And so uh, it was very hard for the Biden people to really interpret Joe Manchin. And they did what most people would do in their situation, which is kind of assume the best and assume what he's telling you in private is really what he believes. Um, There was a moment um, where so the thing about Joe Biden is that he wears a lot of his status anxiety on his sleeve and one of the things that joe biden really cares about in the world is his real estate and so he's got this house in wilmington outside wilmington that he's uh he spent all of this time fixing up if anybody's read richard ben kramer's great book what it takes there's a there's all this all these passages about joe biden and real estate and he he's always showing up at biden's house and biden's wearing boots and he's digging some trench in the front yard, or he's got some part of the house that he's condemned because it's leaking and he hasn't been able to fix it himself, but his house is his enormous source of pride. And so, but he hasn't actually used it as a piece of political theater in his administration, but there was a point where he was dealing with mansion and he thought, okay, I'm going to bring him over the hump by taking him into my personal abode and so he gives mansion this endless tour of his property. He's showing him every room and every 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 wall he's installed and every improvement that he's made. And they have this last meeting where they're going over the details of the Build Back Better legislation where it really seems like they're going to get 2 trillion dollars of social spending. It's going there's going to be universal pre-K, there's going to be daycare subsidies, elder care subsidies, it's going to happen. And at the end of this meeting, they shake hands. And Biden interprets it one way. He says, All right, Manchin tells him at the end of this meeting, We're going to get this done. And they shake hands and he's come to my house. And he's, he's, we've, you know, clearly he understands how important and meaningful this is to me. And Manchin, I think, never really wanted, never really believed in spending all of this money on the social safety net because he's a conservative Democrat from West Virginia. And he's a loyal Democrat, so he got pushed along into doing all these things that he didn't want to do. But at the end of the day, he just struggled to get to yes. And then a couple months later, everything blows up.
0: And I know you didn't write a book about Joe Manchin, but I must just ask you that, uh, do you think that that conviction he seems to have that if you give people assistance, it's going to coddle them? And do you think that's a real conviction or is it a sort of... More Kristen Cinema y, like listening to the money people and what they want. Uh,
1: so the White House, Biden was simultaneously negotiating with Manchin and with Kristen Cinema, and they were very different senators. Manchin has some element of West Virginia populist in him, and so he doesn't like the big banks, but he wants to preserve the fossil fuel industry. Right cinema loves the big banks, but she wants to do something on climate change. So they were always working at cross purposes. And Manchin has all sorts of conspiracy theories about cinema and about how she's gonna end up getting a job working for one of these big banks that she loves.
0: Oh, he's right about that. No, of course he's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: uh, But I think in the end of the day, he really really doesn't believe in um, social welfare. I mean, he believes in it to some extent. He's not—he's not an anarand libertarian,
0: right? Right. Right. Um, backing up to further back in in Joe Biden's career, you know, he he was picked as VP in large part, I think it's safe to say, for his foreign policy credentials, yeah. um which Obama didn't have, yeah, um, and um. And I don't know that he necessarily anticipate. I mean, he knew he was walking into a global pandemic, and ergo, there would yes. be foreign policy involved in his first days of his administration. But this book really documents two crises: yes. um, one of which was the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the other, of course, is the war um, in Ukraine. And I'm I'm curious because Biden seemed to really have a very clear sense that we got to get out of Afghanistan, way more so than Obama had, way more so than the sort of most of the D.C. intelligentsia had, anyone who's been around. And where does that, is that because of Bo? Is it because of the working class, like who's going to fight?
1: Yeah. So Joe Biden has a lot of self-confidence around foreign policy and um, has a very... If he were to come to the Commonwealth Club, um, he probably would have a very complicated relationship with the Commonwealth Club because on the one hand, he wants foreign policy elites. He wants elites in general to like him. On the other hand, he really believes that they're never going to like him. And so it brings out all of these insecurities and his greatest those insecurities manifest themselves. And Joe Biden thinking that he's smarter than the elite Mm -hmm. and that they're lazy and hidebound in their thinking. And for him, Afghanistan was the classic instance of that. And he started going to Afghanistan shortly after 9-11. And he would go there and he'd bring a sleeping bag and he'd he'd, he'd bunked in, in conference rooms in the embassy. He would wait in line in the shower with the Marines with a towel wrapped around his waist. And he would go and visit warlords. And the warlords would tell him, you know, why isn't America doing this? Why isn't America doing that? And those were probably fair questions most of the time. But Joe Biden didn't take them as fair questions. He took them as um, instances of ingratitude. And in his moral code, that sort of ingratitude just irks him. And,
0: Which is both, like, kind of accurate, but also super paternalistic.
1: I mean, super, super paternalistic describes a lot of Joe Biden. I think, um, but he uh, so. But but what he did was it liberated him to see certain things more clearly than other people. That he would he would have these disastrous dinners with Hamid Karzai, and he'd walk out really frustrated. And he just saw in two thousand eight that nation building was not going to work in Afghanistan, and so uh, he began pushing. And so when Obama had to make this decision about what to do. In Afghanistan, um, Biden grabbed him in the situation room and he said, Look, you're a young president. The military is trying to box you in on this. Don't let them jam you. And that became his abiding uh, thought about Afghanistan was that the military was going to was try to stay forever and ever. And it was his job to find, to figure out how to circumvent that, how to bureaucratically. Out fox the generals and that's how he thought about the withdrawal that was uh, in his first months in the presidency that Trump had cut this deal with the Taliban to get out by May 1st 2021 and Biden had to quickly decide if he was going to abide by the Trump agreement to get out or if he was going to change course and uh, as was, he
0: which is tough because everyone kind of the Trump agreement was sort of risible on its face like nobody really believed that this was Done in good faith on Trump's yes. part. It yeah. was, you know, a very Trumpian thing to do. Right. But he saw it as maybe an opportunity in a certain way once he was in office. Like, yes. it's not me that's going to have made the initial decision, but I can stand by what I felt for. And as know, he
1: 10 years. looked at what had happened after the Taliban had cut this decision, they had scaled back a lot of their fighting against the United States and that they had abided by. The terms, more or less, that they negotiated with the Trump administration, and the problem, as I see it, as I as I looked at this, it was not that he wanted to get out. I mean, I think getting out was um, almost everybody will say that they want to get out, and um, but the problem was when he asked the questions about Afghanistan, the questions were about how will R- Russia, China, India, Pakistan respond. What will this do as it relates to terrorism? Will the Ghani government be able to stand on its own? Will that require us to have an over-the-horizon counterterrorism force? But he didn't ask questions about the humanitarian consequences of the Ghani government falling. And so...
0: And do you think that was in part because he just didn't think it would fall cataclysmically and all at once or just didn't consider it?
1: I think certainly he didn't think that the government would collapse all at once. And to be fair to him, none of the intelligence officials were telling him that the government was going to collapse all at once. But I think in part, he just didn't really have um, kind of a universalist sympathy that led him to empathize with the Afghan people. The way that he thought about Afghanistan, as you say, primarily was about Bo Biden. He was thinking about the U.S. soldiers that he encountered when he was in line for the showers and thought about the consequences of sending another generation of soldiers to have miserable experiences. Last man and that, to die yeah. for a mistake. Exactly.
0: Um, and then when, and I'm curious with, with hindsight on that, because it feels like certainly at the time, and this may be a failing of being out here rather than on these coasts, but, um, the media was so hyped about yes. this. And so, and, you know, it was in part because a lot of journalists had had served, if that's the word I want, in Afghanistan, new fixers, new translators, yes. had people that were dependent on them or sources or whatever. But also because it was that sort of blob consensus, to quote Ben Rhodes, um, that, you know, that this was a, a truly terrible thing. I'm curious what you think in retrospect with another year under your belt, was is this going to loom as large in the sort of legacy of Joe Biden as it seemed you know, a few months after it was, had happened?
1: Yeah. So part of the hysteria about Afghanistan that you described was that um, it was said to represent this, um, this failure of American leadership that would forever be etched in the mind of the world and I think that's already been disproven because we've been able to rally the world to oppose Vladimir Putin in Russia. I don't think that it's catastrophic for the reputation of the United States. I don't. I think people will be able to trust the United States moving forward, which was I think, the big fear. Um, but I still think it's a stain on his legacy because um, it was. It was. It was just. It was an unnecessarily unnecessary bungling that um, it was, it should have been imminently foreseeable that the Ghani government would collapse eventually and that there would be tremendous humanitarian consequences. Now, the one thing that the administration gets no credit for was that um, Ghani fled on um, lunchtime in August 15th, 2021. And he left, we didn't know he was leaving Um, uh, he, he did it in a very deceptive sort of way. The night before, um, Tony Blinken, the secretary of state had called Ghani and they'd had this conversation about a transition to a coalition government and Ghani told him, I'd rather die than surrender, which was not (laughs) exactly the way that things played out. Um, and then, there was just this massive humanity that descended on the airport in Kabul, and um, the United States, in response to these terrible scenes, started to improvise a response. And so, by the end of that month, within within a two week time period, 124,000 Afghans were evacuated from Kabul. Biden made a decision on the fly that every C-17 that was gonna leave the airport in Kabul needed to be filled to the brim. We didn't vet any of the people who were leaving Afghanistan. So they could have been um, uh, you know, leaders of feminist NGOs. They could have been Taliban. They could have been, we, we, who, knew, who knew what they were? And um, we then needed to create a system overnight to, um, to house them, to vet them, to figure out where they would land. Ultimately, and they were able to pull this off, they created something like a hub-and-spoke system where everybody was flown to Qatar, and then in Qatar, they were processed, and from Qatar, the government, U.S. government had negotiated deals with the Germans and others to allow us to house the Afghan refugees on bases temporarily. And they had to be fed halal meals. There had to be separate. And ultimately, they needed to be vaccinated for the measles because we we hadn't realized that there was a measles outbreak that was happening. And we needed to then go to the Germans and all these other countries and ask them to house them for a couple weeks longer. It was a pretty incredible thing that maybe only the U.S. military could have pulled off.
0: And you also have a really um, kind of stunning account of how Hillary Clinton, um, who had a long relationship with Afghan women generally, but particularly leaders in sort of, um, feminist leaders, legislative leaders, um, you know, people really trying to gain an actual seat at the table for women in Afghanistan. And she kind of whipped into like activated all these NG, I mean, were they her NG, like did she finance these NGs? Yeah.
1: Well, so she, she's done incredible things as it relates to Afghan women over time in a very quiet sort of way that she would fund fellowships for Afghan women and and without her name attached, she was, uh, before this happened, she was funding a documentary about a woman who was a mayor in Afghanistan, um, who she really admired and had developed a personal relationship with. And as I was reporting about Afghanistan, I kept hearing about the annoyance that the Biden people had with Hillary Clinton. And I thought, oh, there's some sort of interesting story here. And what I discovered was that when Hillary Clinton was, by, was first lady, she had the healthcare debacle and she was trying to figure out what to do with her life, how she could find her voice. And uh, the Taliban had just come to power and uh, Afghan women had come to her in the White House and said, can you help us stop the state department from recognizing the Taliban because the oil companies were putting a lot of pressure on the state department to recognize the Taliban. And she heard their stories. She was really mobilized by it. She succeeded in convincing her husband not to recognize the Taliban. Then she becomes secretary of state and she develops this relationship where she's giving awards on a regular basis to Afghan women. And she'd set up a network of NGOs to deal with global women's issues. And so as she's getting word from journalists and from other people about what, what's about to happen in Afghanistan. In fact, she gets faxed um, a document from somebody inside the government with the names of 125 women who they anticipate the Taliban would want to assassinate. And she called it the kill list. And she went to Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, these officials within the Biden administration, and said, "Here's the kill list. I know what's going to happen. What are you doing about it?" And she kept she kept uh, putting pressure on them, like, "Who who's running this process? What's what are we going to do about humanitarian evacuations?" And she never got a satisfactory answer from them. And so she realized that she had to mobilize her own network. And so the NGOs she worked with began to um, set up a network of safe houses in Kabul. They began to work with security contractors to try to figure out what to do in the eventuality of the Ghani government collapsing. And in fact, when the Ghani government did collapse, um, they had this network spring into action and women they were trying to get out were known as the white scarves because when they showed up at the airport, they were told to wear white scarves, which would allow Marines and other people to pick them out of the crowd and to shepherd them into the airport. And but th- nobody
0: really told the Marines. It <laughs>
1: <out>. <laughs> no, no. It was, it was a lot of improvisation and a lot of futility and a lot of... I mean, Hillary Clinton's NGOs didn't have a whole lot of experience running mass evacuations right. because nobody had experience running mass evacuations. And in the end, there, are, there were a 1,000 women who ended up in Albania. Um, and, and they ended up in Albania because Bill Clinton had uh, been very active in Kosovo. And uh, the president of Albania likes to joke that there are a hundred children in this country named Bill Clinton. And um, and, uh, there was this one- Not for the reasons we might think. Yeah, exactly. But there was a moment where um, one of the, the Taliban had stopped letting uh, uh, these women into the airport, even though they had, they were on the right list. And so they needed visas to go to Albania. And there was no such thing as a visa to go from Afghanistan to Albania. So the Albanian government working with the Hillary NGOs had to uh, basically create these things overnight. And um, one of the women who worked for Hillary um, was sitting in the Albanian foreign ministry, and she said, well, we need to make these things look more official. And they took this bag of potato chips, and they took a picture of the QR code on the back of the potato chips and slapped it on the visa, (laughs) which, (laughs)
0: Sort of like a, a very low-rent Jason Bourne. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, going back to kind of broader Biden programs and messaging, one of the things I'm struck by, um, you know, like like you, I'm around a lot of, um, you know, young journalists and young young folks, and when you talk to Gen Z voters in particular, you know, Biden's old. He's older. He's old to us. He's really old to them. Yeah. So there's already a thing, but, but also that they fixate on things like they're very fixated on the willow project, the willow drilling project, um, rather than canceling Keystone or rather than what the, uh, inflation reduction, AKA climate bill. Is or that he canceled
1: do. their student debt.
0: Or, yeah. We'll come to that. Um, or, you know, the executive order on Anwar, which yeah. is sort of long fantasize for progressive yeah. environmental dream. And I'm curious what you think that says about b- the Biden administration's messaging issue, or is it just the way that information flows now that there's really not any kind of top-down messaging capability anymore?
1: Yeah. So... I, I guess I've been trained. I'm sure you have been as well to kind of uh, be somewhat suspicious that there is this panacea that exists in the form of more effective messaging.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that there's this political scientist from Dartmouth, named Brendan Nyhan, who talks about um, the Green Lantern phenomenon. That there is this sense that if only the president was like the Green Lantern and used the bully puppet to more effective uh, in more effective ways and every progressive dream would be achieved. And um, I'm skeptical of that for a couple of reasons. One is there's so much distrust of institutions. And I think that there is something about Joe Biden as an institutionalist that trips that distrust. Um, There's, there is something about his age that I think is um, an obstacle to him effectively messaging um, that uh, there's, he just doesn't seem like a strong leader. And that's by design to a certain extent that when he came into office, he thought that the best thing that he could do for the country was not let politics occupy every crevice of the American psyche as it had during the Trump administration. And the pandemic was very much
0: on his brain. Well, consoler-in-chief. I mean, no one yeah. had consoled anybody. No one yeah. had you know, allowed us to mourn or take notice of you know a million people dead.
1: Yeah, and the biggest problem he confronted was upon coming into office was that he needed to persuade all of these Americans who didn't want to take the vaccine to take the vaccine. And so he felt like if he was in their face constantly, then and and he was he was a polarizing figure who was always messaging, then he would he would get in the way of that.
0: I think the Willow project kind of messaging also though to me you know the reason he did it. Gas prices were rising after Russia invaded Ukraine. What can I do to signal that yes. I'm taking this seriously? So you re- release from the strategic petroleum reserve, and you announce this thing that no one had really ever heard of before. Yeah, um, and it's such a very Washington <laughs> yes. way to think about like what people are going to care, care about in a year, like. Who's gonna remember? You know, even if got ga- whatever gas price is, they still high. People are still gonna be pissed if they're low. They're not gonna remember yeah. like, Well, thank God you authorized the Willow project to start up in five more years. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, and does that is that a Biden thing or is that just a DC? Oh, know, I think administrative. It's, like,
1: I, I don't actually. I didn't study that for my book, but that feels like a very Biden thing to me. That. Um, he was so fixated on gas prices and um, he would, it was one interesting thing about Biden is that he's a very hard person to work for. um, And he has this inner circle of people who've been around him since the 1980s, literally since the 1980s. His, his chief of staff was this guy, Ron clan who started working with him when he was 28 in 1988. And, um, his Biden's alter ego is a guy called Mike Donnellan who also started working with him in the 1980s. And when Donnellan and Klein were students at Georgetown, um, Donnellan was running for student council president and Klain was covering him for uh, the daily Hoya. So it's this inner circle that's been um, very tight. It's um, Biden's an Irish Catholic politician from the 1960s for him. Klan is the atomic unit of politics and so these people who've been around him forever know how his mind thinks. And when you come into a meeting with him, Biden actually is a very active, aggressive questioner. And a lot of the questions he asks are about very specific corners of policy, because he wants to be able to talk to, if, the, if Mary Portola, the congresswoman from Alaska is coming into his office he wants to be able to tell her in the most granular detail what the Inflation Reduction Act is going to do for Alaska and if you're a young aide working for Biden and you aren't acculturated in the type of to the type of questions that he asks you're going to flail and he's going to get very mad at you um and so when it came he to sort of the, it just punches with,
0: down a little bit to, to he definitely young, punches down to the young yeah. aides, less experience, and yet he must inculcate a real sense of loyalty from these. I mean, these people could have any kind of jobs they want. Yeah. So these folks who've been around him for twenty, thirty years, he's a
1: father figure. Yeah. And the thing about Biden is that um, the highs and lows are both very high and very low. Mm-hmm. That the moments of grace that you have when you work for Joe Biden are just exceptional. That. If your if your parent dies, he will call every member of your family to try to console them in in ways that you you will always remember. If your your kid is born, he'll show up at something or send. He's very attuned to all these things that we know Joe Biden to be attuned to, and that's real and meaningful. And then you learn to live with his frustrations and venting, and you learn how to manage around them. And uh, one of his aides, Bruce Reed, who has worked with them forever, shows up at meetings for Joe Biden, having anticipated every question that he thinks Joe Biden will answer. And he writes the questions on index cards like that so that he's, he's, he's hyper prepared for those moments, but just as it relates to gas prices. So Joe Biden would enter every meeting in the run-up to the election, asking aides, what's the price of gas today? They would slip him in the binder that he takes home every night the gas prices across the country. It was something he was super attuned to because for him, that's the very practical way in which people experience the economy. It may be a narrow way. It may not be a reflective way, but in his view of the world, that's the touch point, which is why I think something like Willow would be something that he would obsess over.
0: And you said that part of the reason he's so obsessed with details is this plagiarism episode that mm. um happened back in 80s. yeah nineteen eighty
1: seven
0: um uh, he basically inadvertently or not shamelessly anyway kind of repeated the words of another politician and was called out pretty in pretty real time,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: And so what did that kind of do to his his self-confidence?
1: Well, first of all, the plagiarism thing itself is really fascinating to me because Joe Biden is someone who everyone knows was born with a stutter. And a lot of his early um, childhood, his teenage years, was fixated on overcoming the stutter. And so he would deliver speeches into the mirror in order to um, become an eloquent person. And when he was uh in a young politician in the eighties and running for president, everybody knew him to be um somebody who could really give a speech. And his speeches aspired to being Kennedy esque. And so they had um that there was call and response, there were there were there were there were choruses and um part of the problem was it wasn't him. It was the person that he wanted. His oratory was was aspirational. It reflected the politician. He wanted to be. And so it's not surprising to me that he would end up inhabiting another politician's story subconsciously. But when that happened, um, one of my favorite Washington cliches is that he went from being a show horse to a workhorse. And so he was determined not to seem plastic ever again. And so when he prepares for a press conference or an interview or a speech, um, prep time consumes a vast part of his schedule. That when Obama was, uh, when aides wanted to prep Obama for a public appearance, Obama would essentially turn and run in the other direction because Obama was very confident that he could handle those types of public presentations. Biden is never confident about that. And so you start talking to him about a press conference, he'll, 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 you know, week in advance, he'll start to have prep sessions and then he's just never satisfied with the talking points that he gets. So he brings in experts to try to help him understand the finer points of policy. It's something, theoretically, we should want out of a politician. But on the other hand, it is extremely time-consuming. And the thing about Joe Biden... He's
0: micromanaging himself.
1: He's, micro, he's self-editing.
0: Yeah. but the, So what's fascinating, like, you know, he's got this long-storied uh, reputation as a, a gaffe machine. Yes, um, which he knows. And so the preparation has not historically completely uh cured him of that is is that what he's facing now where he's like i gotta if i could just get the details and i'm not gonna start blathering and and make an error or
1: i think he doesn't go out in public and submit to press conferences or interviews because he's pretty sure he's gonna gaff at the end of the, the interview and that in gaffing he knows that gaffing is president is different than gaffing as a senator or vice president. Well,
0: and it's so weaponized now. Like when he said, oh, you know, I'm, uh, after three days up, you know, on his, on his uh, whirlwind tour of, uh, of uh, Europe and other places, or Asia, I guess it was, that, um, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm pretty tired. And, you know, Fox News. But also just other people are like, yeah. oh, my God, he's so tired. Yeah. Um, was the gay marriage gaff a gaff?
1: Um, I think... I think he knew what he was doing with that. I mean I I I'm I'm trying to re I it's not part of my book. I'm trying to reconstruct how he talks about it in his memoir. And I <laughs> I remember uh he was really afraid to walk into um he both wanted to explain himself to Barack Obama but then was kind of frozen out and uh, there was this he, he he felt like he was just getting a raw deal there and that in and, and for Joe Biden that sense of kind of grievance is like never far away.
0: So this is San Francisco and of course as much as we care about the, the inner workings and fears uh, and insecurities of Joe Biden we are also equally as fascinated by those of Kamala Harris. Yes. What is going on with her?
1: So uh, <laughs> there's um, this is not going to sound um, plausible when it comes out of my mouth but Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are very similar. That they have, um, and people in the White House understand this, that they both have these defining insecurities. We just talked about Joe Biden's. Kamala Harris understands she's a historic first and um, has this abiding belief that if she makes a mistake, she's going to get Creamed by the press for it, and and and, and 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 it, which is true, and that the consequences will resound through history, and that everybody who follows her is going to be penalized by her making a mistake. It's a lot of weight to yeah. put, and so just as Joe Biden self edits, I think she 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 prepares like crazy in the way that Joe Biden prepares like crazy, and slightly differently in that. Uh, She has this prosecutorial background, as you all know, and um, she, she enjoys preparation in um, the sort of way that you would enjoy a lawyer would enjoy preparing for a trial. So it's, there's, there is an element of bliss coupled with insecurity that goes into her, her preparation, but when she talks, I mean, it's pretty clear she's self-editing in a very massive way. And and it means that as the sentence is emerging from her mouth, it's not her thought. It's like her third and sec- fourth thought about what she's trying to say. And so her sentences end up being this jumble that... Does she
0: know this? Because it seems like the, the number one thing that would alleviate people about Biden to some extent... Is if we saw the Kamala Harris who can like grill Bill Barr or tell us how to brine a turkey, you know, like either either time where she's fluid and natural, she totally can be, just a little bit more of that. That people wouldn't be like, oh my god, she can't take over for him. Oh my god, what's gonna happen? Yeah,
1: because when it comes to actually doing the stuff of government, like it it would, she's she's got a ton of experience now, and I, I I would ask. Generals, I would ask people in the public health, people who had no political skin in the game, how did Kamala Harris do in this meeting or that meeting? And they always had very favorable reviews of her performance. I don't think competence is not the issue. It's the messaging. It's the, the communication, which is, again, Biden's problem as well to some extent
0: it it not that this is our problem to solve for them but it it does seem like the sort of messaging is is a afterthought in maybe every administration but certainly this yeah. one where like that not necessarily the just the ads but you know like more thought earlier in the day about yeah. how to how to persuade people we're doing good stuff would be would have maybe had a an impact
1: yeah i, I think um once you get into the white house and you're dealing with these problems there's almost a self-righteousness that you get about dealing with the problems and um you know i'm, I'm here to fix the baby formula shortage and i'm not going to be bothered with the triviality of
0: telling talk- people yeah about fixing the baby exactly, exactly. Right, right, right exactly um do you just what is his relationship with obama like at this point
1: so um i i actually so i was in the white house uh in uh early summer And, uh, I was actually, I was going to, I was invited to see Biden with a a group of columnists and Barack Obama came bounding down the hall and he had just had lunch with, uh, with Biden and, uh, Obama's tie was at half mast. And I asked him, is there anything about this place that you miss? And he was like, absolutely not. (laughs) He's like, (laughs) I have no affection for this place. I have affection for the people who worked here, work here, but this place doesn't mean anything to me. And then you go in and you see Biden,
0: just kind of a crazy thing to say. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Biden loves being president of the United States more than anything in the world. It's like, he's waiting around his whole life to be able to have conversations as commander in chief. And, um, you know, I think it, that it's kind of an underrated part of his um, unwillingness to relinquish the presidency is that he actually likes the job. Hmm. Um, uh, there, are these, there are these moments where, um, especially after he's met foreign leaders, uh, there was there was he just will spend he spends so much time doing everything when he comes when politicians senators come in to talk to him. You can't allocate half an hour. You have to allocate two hours for that conversation because Biden will regale them with so many stories, and he, he just doesn't want to leave that meeting after he meets uh, a foreign leader that in a pressurized situation. Bill Clinton, sounds like yeah, it is. It's definitely. But okay, so Obama was one of the big eye rollers as it related to um, to Biden that he he didn't really. Um, he, did, he didn't like the monologues. He didn't like his presence in meetings. Um, but over time, that changed. I was, uh, I was on Pod Save America with John Favreau, who was Obama's speechwriter, and he said that when Obama sta- started, they would include all these lines in speeches about um, Obama's reflecting Obama's disdain for politics as usual and for Washington. And there was a moment in the middle of Obama's presidency where he told Favreau, Let's take these lines out of these speeches because my view on this has changed. And because of Harry Reid, Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, his feelings towards politics itself had started to change and he started to critique his critique. Um,
0: So Joe Biden, you know, came in and probably mostly believed it but also wanted to sell us on like, I'm going to return the country to this, some kind of bipartisan, at least being able to talk to each other, some yeah. form of comedy. Like, does he still believe that? I mean, given the events of the last 24 hours. Yeah. Um,
1: um, so I think he had, so his relationship with McCarthy was interesting because he didn't know McCarthy at all until they started to negotiate over the debt ceiling and the first time mccarthy walked into the oval office i think biden had a lot of disdain for him because it which remained probably after that meeting where he's like this guy is a rookie he's like he's in so far over his head he's like revealed all of his bottom lines to me in the beginning of this this negotiation it didn't take anything for me to figure out how this guy works and i'm just going to let him go out there and talk to the press and look like he's owning this negotiation And that's all he wants is his vain desire to look like he's in charge and behind closed doors. I can own him on the substance because he's already revealed to me what his bottom line is. Um, I think it's gotta be pretty distressing to Biden to see, um, the dysfunction in Congress because as an institutionalist, he wants institutions to function. He's even if there's political profit to be had for the democratic party from, this disarray, uh, it still means there's going to be a government shutdown. It still means aid to Ukraine is not going to flow. And it still means that public is going to have this very dim view of Washington, which is what he wants to correct. He still talks to Mitch McConnell and still, despite everything has um, fondness for Mitch McConnell, if that's possible.
0: <laughs> I guess someone has to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know your book basically ends at, at the midterms uh and i'm wondering what events that have transpired since if you were like on deck to write part 2 or part 2.5 yeah. what would the what would be the things that, you've, that you that you know while you're writing you're like oh my god i cannot include this because i'm ending in time yeah. you know at this point what were the things that pulled at your that, that you really felt a great sense of regret that you couldn't kind of uh, diagram in detail
1: so the the end of the story shapes the story, yeah, and so if i'd ended my book at one hundred a mark, it would have been a fairly optimistic view of the biden administration with if i'd ended it at the one year mark, it would have been a totally depressing story about the second coming of Jimmy Carter. And ending it at the two-year mark, it ended up being an optimistic moment because he outperformed expectations in the midterms. He had this raft of legislative accomplishments, and the war in Ukraine had tur- was turning out to be this um, unlikely success. Because the same day that Democrats do pretty well in the midterms and defy historical trends, the Ukrainians basically managed to evict uh, the Russians from Kherson. And so the counteroffensive was a success. Um, everything that's come after it has been a slog, and it's been uh, painful to watch because um, he doesn't have control over Congress anymore. Um, the war in Ukraine is um, this tree tree line by tree line war of attrition that I don't think that there is anything close to an imminent diplomatic solution to. I think the war in Ukraine is been transformed to this thing that's going to go on and on and on. And the way that we treat the war in Ukraine is as, as an ally is going to change, where um, they're going to have to establish their own arms industry. Our own arms industry is going to have to transform to be able to supply them with the never-ending supply of artillery that they need. Um, uh, and then you have... Uh, So one thing that I find just as uh, painful is the way in which Republicans have been able to set the terms for this election, where you now have this split screen where Hunter Biden's trial is going to happen simultaneously to the Trump trials and everything is muddied. Uh, 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 Biden looks like another guy who's um, exploited the system to... um, protect his son to enrich himself. The age issue now exists on a continuum with Trump's own issues of mental acuity.
0: Right. I mean, which there's yeah. just no comparison. Yeah, no, no,
1: no. Getting lost in a story or forgetting somebody's name is not the same thing as being insane. Bonkers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, Hunter Biden, if he's mentioned in the book, I, I might have skipped over it, but like, you know, that doesn't have a huge role in the first two years. It was no. burbling all along, yeah. Giuliani, laptop, et cetera. But it always seemed like, okay, we're going to flush this out of our system. Um, I, you know, nobody really knows how that's going to turn out. And certainly if he did anything wrong, he should be held accountable. But I'm wondering, there's something about the trajectory of Hunter Biden that's been lost that seems very key to the story of joe biden which is that horrible accident and just the trauma that that family went through when you know hunter was four three or four um can you just flush out a little bit like what the kind of bond is between them i mean obviously Bo was like the the golden. the golden boy um and hunter was always kind of troubled um They never talk about it in this way, but it's always this sort of trauma and maybe traumatic brain injury. Who knows? I mean, that was a horrible, horrible accident. Like, I'm just, I'm curious what your kind of analysis of the family dynamics is at this point. Yeah.
1: Um, It's like, it's like uh, over time, you know, uh, there's all of these layers of guilt that have um, just accumulated on their relationship. So, all right. Hunter Bo was the golden child. Hunter knew that Bo was the golden child. How could he not? Biden knew that Hunter knew that Bo was the golden child. And so, um, and when Hunter dies, I think, when Bo dies, thank you, um, I think that Biden starts to feel guilt about how Hunter has kind of been left in the cold. I think Hunter feels tremendous guilt that, whatever he's done in the course of his life is now potentially imperiling his father's career. Um, I think it's very hard. I mean, obviously it's very hard for and Joe Biden so to-
0: Shakespearean. It's so Shakespearean. It's an amazing yeah. melodrama, really.
1: Yeah, and- it's um, Joe Biden has to think about his relationship with Hunter now as a political matter and as a strategic matter, but it's the one thing in the world he's incapable of thinking politically or strategically mm-hmm. about. And Hunter is incapable of making a good decision, and so every decision that he's made over the course of the last couple months is um, is bad for the country. He should have. He should have. Um, he, ate he, he should have. Cut whatever plea deal he could cut. I understand he should have kept. He should have kept his lawyer Chris Clark, who was a good lawyer, and um, he's let everything. They both let everything tailspin.
0: There are about ten questions in here that that all get to the same. Okay, time, let's talk about is, age. That's the question we we know you're going to get, which is, do you think his age is a problem, and do you think anyone could convince him? to stand down or anything could convince him to stand down if that's still yeah. possible at this point.
1: Here's how I think about age. Um, Nikki Haley has suggested that presidents take a mental acuity test. If Joe Biden were to take that test right now, he would, he would totally pass. Joe Biden is got the mental acuity to govern right now. Um, and he's been in, he's been a surprisingly energetic president. Does Joe Biden have the 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 physical energy and stamina to conduct a presidential campaign? I have serious doubts about that. Um uh, do I like the idea that there should be we should have 86-year-old presidents? I do not like that idea. I think I would much rather prefer having a president who was not at that place in the actuarial tables. Um But I can't tell you, what I can't tell you is how Joe Biden will age because everybody ages in a different sort of way. And um, aging is oftentimes a very nonlinear process and we're not really capable of having a good conversation about um, aging politicians because everybody brings their own baggage to this conversation. You project your parents and your grandparents onto the conversation, your Senator, your Senator. <laughs> yeah. Um, that there, right, so what should we, like, what, where does this leave us? And I, I don't have a great answer to that. I think that that ship has basically sailed, that there's a lot of wish casting that the media does about, um, attractive alternatives to Biden. And I'm here to tell you that most of those attractive alternatives to Joe Biden are not as attractive when you stare at them up close and you start to imagine how the campaign's going to play out. Like your your governor um like is very compelling when he's on television, but so will the ads about the you know your crime and homeless problem in San Francisco and LA um, when Donald Trump cuts those ads.
0: Um, I mean, he's going to cut those ads anyway, but yeah. Yeah,
1: right. Um, and I also know that I remember what happened in the 2016 primary and contested primaries can be Pandora's boxes. And there were so many bad feelings left by that primary that had consequences in the election that led to Donald Trump.
0: Do you think Biden has a point in thinking that he he alone can beat him?
1: I mean, I think that that nobody should. When we're in that realm of the indispensable person, we're in a bad realm, and I and I don't think that that's. I don't think that that's true. I think that there are other people who could beat Donald Trump, um, but I mean, he he is right that he is the one tested candidate who's managed to do it in the past, and there are aspects to his political persona that insulate him from some of the most obvious attacks that Trump would launch against any Democrat.
0: Finally, um, Biden knew you were writing this book. Did he like it?
1: So I can't, I can't answer that question for sure. Um, My sense is that Biden does not like books written about himself, although he had a very interesting relationship with Richard Ben Kramer, where I think it was very painful for him to read about himself in the way that Richard Ben Kramer depicted him. And then ultimately when Richard Ben Kramer passed away, Biden was able to deliver this eulogy about how Richard Ben Kramer had helped him see parts of himself that he hadn't been able to recognize in the past. Um, you know, my sense is is that Biden um, ha- is somebody who has all of these theories about the world that come from his experience. Some of those experience, some of those theories are very wise. Others are a little bit uh, idiosyncratic. And I think one of his idiosyncratic theories is that he doesn't want to get scooped on his own memoir, which he'll write when he's one hundred and twenty years old. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Frank, I'd like to thank you so much oh, for thank taking you, Clara. your time for, uh, uh, and would like to encourage everyone. Uh, if you haven't bought Frank's book already um, to buy it, uh, the last politician inside Joe Biden's white house and the struggle for America's future. And if you're watching us online or if you're here in person and you would like to support the Commonwealth club, please visit the website at uh, www.commonwealthclub.org. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth club of California.